Well, can I start by saying how good it is to be here with you all? And uh, I do very much uh, appreciate and value John's fellowship over many years now and his like-mindedness, his faithfulness to the gospel. And uh, we've been blessed to be able to benefit from his ministry also when he's come to Spring Road and also preached at our house party. Uh, I understand that um, this weekend was originally arranged for last weekend, but due to my ineptitude, it had to be put back to this weekend. And John was hoping that I would see some good weather uh, last weekend. Apparently he had it last weekend, we missed it, but uh, uh, it's very good to be here anyway, whatever the weather's like, to be with the Lord's people and to be able to come and have the privilege of ministering the Word of God. Well, it's an anniversary service, a Thanksgiving service, and tonight I'd like us to look at a helpful subject that we'll seek to bring out from Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to just read verses 1 to 16, Philippians chapter 1, verses, sorry, verses 1 to 6, Philippians 1, verses 1 to 6. Paul says, Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's letter to the Philippians is a, is a wonderful letter. And it shows us not so much Paul, the theologian of Christ, although there is very strong theology in here. Uh, the words Paul gives us in chapter 2 concerning the uh, person of Jesus Christ are uh, very much full of theology, full of uh, the Lord's truth concerning his son. But it's not like sort of Romans um, or some of Paul's other letters, which are sort of more theological. It tends to give us more Paul's personal experience, his personal experience of Christ, the Christ he knew and the Christ that he loved. Here we see life in Christ lived out. And it shows us a man who'd learnt the source and the secret of true peace and contentment. And it shows us Christ, who had taught Paul the secret and really is the secret, a contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in his greetings there in verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds these Philippians that they are uh, saints, they've been called out, called out into the fellowship of Christ, called out from the world into the fellowship of each other. And having come to know God's grace and God's peace, Paul desires that they would continue to know even greater degrees of God's grace and of God's peace. What does Paul think of these Philippian Christians? What's his view of them? How does he uh, regard them? Well, they're a great source of joy, great source of joy to the Apostle Paul. Every time he thinks of them, his heart is lifted 
and his sort of day brightens as he thinks of these uh, believers there in Philippi. And Paul gives both them and us a wonderful example in these opening verses. And so our title tonight is The Thankful Christian. The Thankful Christian. Our preaching portion is verses 3 to 6. The Thankful Christian. And we've got two points. We're going to see firstly Paul is thankful. And secondly, why is he thankful? We're going to ask why Paul is thankful. Firstly, Paul is thankful. Now God really gives us so much. God provides so marvellously for all on the earth and he provides even for those who never acknowledge him and never submit themselves to him and truly come to know him. We know that uh, we've gone through some difficult times in our nation of late and uh, we know that there have been various things that have beset us as a nation both with regard to health and also with regard to our economy. And yet, when we look at nations, other nations in this world, we still realise how richly provided we are as a people, really, how, how greatly God, in his kindness, has provided for us materially. And yet we find that men and women do not acknowledge God. They do not thank God for all his provision. Really, unthankfulness is one of the marks of fallen human nature. Paul speaks about those who are unthankful. And sometimes this sort of attitude can rub off on us as Christians. We can start to not be as thankful as we should for all that God has given us and all that God has done for us. And we can start to be those who sometimes enjoy a good moan and a good time of complaining. Well, is ever the grumpy old man or the grumpy old woman syndrome something which should sort of mark out the life of a believer in Christ. I don't believe it is. I know at times it's something I have got to watch myself that I don't give way to, the grumpy old man syndrome. But is it something that should really mark us out as believers, that generally we're unthankful and we're rather grumpy as people? Well, as I say, I don't believe it is, because if you look at the Apostle Paul here, this man is being held in Rome. He's in prison. He's being made uncomfortable by chains. And he's one who at times, it seems, suffered greatly from the cold. He'll eventually request a cloak that it might be brought to him. And he's being slandered while he's there in prison, condemned by other Christians. Even other Christians are seeking to add to his chains. He's being kept back from going out with the gospel to his beloved churches. And as far as he knows, he'll soon be taken and held down by a group of Roman soldiers who will chop off his head. Well, Paul, what will you now say to us in this situation that you're in? Will you give us a whole catalogue of moans and uh, complaints? That's not what we see, is it? What did he say at the beginning? He says at verse 3, I thank God. I thank God. God. What an amazing thing. This man has got a heart full of thankfulness. Even in that situation, he expresses thanks to God. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for Paul. 
He's made him a thankful and a joyful man, even in the most difficult of circumstances. He can thank God. Now, we're not expected to become sort of blind optimists who sort of go around and think, oh, well, it will all turn out all right in the end. We know ultimately it will turn out all right in the end for the child of God. But we're not those who sort of lose touch with reality. And sometimes we obviously have to highlight failing and wrongdoing. Nor are those who are just expected to sort of say, well, I'll just put a brave face on everything. Some people, they say, you know, how are you? And you sort of feel, well, I've always got to smile and say, I'm okay, I'm okay. Those words, I'm okay, can sort of hide a thousand different things, can't they, that are going on in a person's life. And people can feel, well, we're letting the side down. It's being unchristian if we ever admit to being discouraged or upset. No, the Bible says we're to bear one another's burdens. How can we do that if we don't know what our burdens are? Nor do we say that, as the psalmist did, on many occasions that we don't acknowledge that there can be times where we know great grief and great distress, even as a child of God. We're not being exhorted, as we look at the challenge and example of Paul's thankfulness, to just sort of go around all the time with some sort of forced plastic smile on our faces. How was it that Paul, even in these dire circumstances, could have such a thankfulness to God. Well, I believe the secret is in verse 3, because notice I didn't really quote it correctly. Paul doesn't say, I thank God. He says, I thank my God. I thank my God. Paul can say he's my God. Paul has found this undefeatable joy and thankfulness in part because he knows someone who's called his God, who is his own God. He can say, my God. Here he is, he's cut off from his beloved churches, he's in prison, he's feeling the cold, he's facing death, and in many ways, Paul is like a little tiny speck in the universe compared to God's vastness and God's greatness. And yet... This great and glorious being has set his love upon him and has saved him and loves him. And Paul can look up to this wondrous being and call him my God. He's my God. He's the God of the whole universe, but he's my God especially. By God's mercy and grace, he's been reconciled to this God. He's been brought into this personal relationship and God is and ever will be Paul's God. It's a wonderful thing to know if you're a child of God here tonight. He's your God. You can say he's my God. Paul could speak, couldn't he, of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, God the Son has loved Paul with that wondrous love. And in Isaiah, God says of his people, you are mine. You are mine. We belong to God. He's my God. And whatever we go through, whatever we experience, it's a wonderful comfort for us, isn't it, to know that this God is my God. I am his, and he is mine. And I'm poor and needy, but I know God, and I know he loves me. 
and he knows me. I'm an atom compared to his enormity. And yet, he knows me, he loves me, I am his, and he is mine. And he's promised to be mine in all my days, in all my trials, and in all my needs. Psalm 48, verse 14, for this is God our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even unto death. We're his, we can't be separated from him. We belong to him, he belongs to us, and he's going to lead us even right through to the end. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, and he's going to be with us even as we pass through death. What a wondrous God he is. This helps, doesn't it, to quieten our complaints and to turn that frown of discontent into more of a smile. Now, there are particular things that Paul mentions here which caused him to rejoice. Paul is thankful. He's a thankful believer, even in those circumstances. But why is he thankful? Our second point, why is he thankful? Now, we've got three reasons why he's thankful. So really, we've got you by stealth there. You thought you had two points, but in fact, we've got four, because we've got three for our second point. Why is he thankful? There are three reasons I think we can bring out of this text. And the first thing we see is Paul says, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, he who has begun a good work in you. Paul rejoices because God has begun a good work in those Philippian believers. There are two very well-known members of the Philippian church. I don't know if you can name them, but there was uh, Lydia and the Philippian jailer. Who saved Lydia? Who saved the Philippian jailer? Was it that somewhere in Lydia's heart and in the jailer's heart there was something that had always been there in their hearts that had this sort of inherent desire to respond to the message of the gospel and therefore, as it were, by their own will and strength come to Christ? Was there something that had been there in their hearts right from birth which just needed to sort of be fanned into flame by the Spirit? It was always there, these sort of embers of spiritual life. Well, if that was so, it's not God who's begun the good work in their hearts, is it? They can claim that it's because of their own abilities that that work has begun. But that's never the case. You see, the Bible says that when we're unsaved, when we're believing, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're not a little alive. We've not got a spark of life. We are dead. And there's no life. Not even an ember. We're like Lazarus in the tomb. He was dead. Lazarus could not raise himself. He could not make himself alive. He was dead. And so too were we. We were like that when we were outside of Christ. But wonderfully, as Paul says to those Ephesian believers, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. It was God. It was God alone who began that good work in them. And it was God alone who had begun this good work in these believers. Some teach, well, all men and women of their own volition are able, of their own power, as it were, to come to God. 
As I say, that is not the teaching of the Bible. If we waited for men and women to take the first step towards God, well, we would wait forever because we are spiritually dead. It's God, you see. God must intervene. God must work. God must intervene. He must begin a good work. Who opened Lydia's heart? The Lord. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. This is a testimony of Scripture as to how God works. A man once went to hear George Whitfield preach and he carried a load of stones with him because he was going to throw them at George Whitfield, hoping to break his head. And as he stood there hearing Whitfield preach, gradually one stone after the other dropped from his hand. Because you see, rather than breaking Whitfield's head, God broke that man's heart. A man once sat under a ministry, the same ministry, for 30 years. And one day he went to the preacher and he said, why didn't you tell me these things before? Yet it was the same message he'd heard that day that he'd heard for years. But you see, on that day, God broke into his heart. God began that good work in him. Aren't we thankful for this? As the Lord's people, aren't we thankful? We know, don't we, if God hadn't chosen us and God hadn't worked in us, we'd have never chosen him. We bless him, don't we? Bless God. We marvel that he ever intervened and came and worked in our life. And it's something we can give thanks to God for, that of all the mass of humanity, he's worked in us. He's made us his own. He's given us life. We may be small in number. Churches may be small in number. Do we turn away? No, we're like Peter, aren't we? To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ. There's no one we can go to, really. And really, though we are small in number, we're like that man who survived the Black Death. There was a black death at work in an area and the whole village was wiped out. But one man had the black death and he survived. And many doubted that he'd actually had it because they said, how could he su survive the black death? The people were incredulous until one day another man from another village who'd actually seen the man wandering in a field, seen the bubes on his face, said, no, he had the plague. And he's now free of it. And the man said, I can't deny. I can't deny what has happened to me. And it's the same with us. We can't deny. We can't deny what the Lord has done in our hearts. We can't deny how gracious God has been to us. We may be few in number in this world. Our churches may be small. And yet we cannot deny what God has done. And how God has intervened and how God has made us his own and how we want to serve him and honour him and obey him. So Paul is thankful. Something we can ever be thankful for, that God had begun a good work. And we can be thankful. God has begun this good work in me. It's all of his doing. Why ever has he loved me? Why ever did he love me? Why ever did he look down into this world and, and work in me? don't deserve it and it's all of his doing and it's all of the wonder of his grace but what had that work that God had begun what had it produced 
in those Philippian believers. Well, we see that Paul is thankful that God had begun a good work in them, but also he's thankful, this is our third point, for the fact that the gospel was still their priority. The gospel was still their first concern. Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. These Philippian believers still had this strong fellowship with Paul in the gospel. Fellowship there, if you like, can almost be thought of like a sort of partnership. They were still partners with him in the gospel, in the fellowship of the gospel. He thanks God that that very gospel that he preached to them when he was there and which had converted them is still that gospel which they are committed to and which they are upholding and which they are preaching. Paul rejoiced that these believers were still partners with him in the gospel. They still loved, they still upheld, they still stood by and sought to proclaim the gospel, the same gospel that Paul had declared to them, which is Christ's gospel, the unchanging gospel. They were partners with him in the fellowship of the gospel. I wonder what could be the most wonderful association or partnership that you could be involved in. If we look at the world, the world's got these various clubs and various privileges that it uh, highly esteems and uh, sort of envies or covets. Perhaps to be a member of a certain football club or to be a member at Wimbledon, to be able to go into sort of the member's place there in Wimbledon, have the sort of strawberries and cream and this sort of thing, or to be a member at the MCC, oh, that would be a privilege, Marleybone Cricket Club, be able to wear the tie and everything, go in the member's enclosure there at Lord's, or to be a member, an honorary member of Oxford or Cambridge University, or to be a member of the Privy Council. Think of that privilege, think of that honour. To be a close confidant, a close counsellor of the Queen. So really none of these compare. And there's nothing in this world that compares to the fellowship the Christian knows, the partnership, the association the Christian knows. We're a partner in the everlasting gospel of God. We are those who are in the fellowship of the gospel of God. We belong to the affiliation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see the value of this in this day? We thank God for this church. 220 years. And it still continues faithfully in the partnership, the fellowship, in the faithfulness of Christ's gospel. We bless God for that. And you see, this was a sign of God's blessing on these Philippians. It was a sign that God was with them. They continued steadfastly in the gospel. 
They still loved the Lord and his message of salvation. They kept praying for the Lord's work. They kept supporting the Lord's work. They did all they can to further this work of the gospel in their own city there in Philippi. Still their hope, their joy, their comfort was in a saviour who was slain for sinners. A saviour who was crucified. They held to the truth of God's word. Sadly in our day we know many churches have departed from this. Something comes in, it can be very subtle. And they say well we need a message that is more in tune with what the world sort of wants. And it's more in tune with that which people will readily accept and we need to acknowledge that you know things have moved on and we've got to be those who therefore perhaps we become more man-centered to attract more into the churches sadly often the question is never asked what says the word of god where is our confidence what is it that god's word says about how we go about things and seek to honor the Lord, what is the true gospel that God truly owns and truly blesses to the souls of men and women? These Philippians had not deviated from it. Thank God that this church hasn't deviated from it. It's still being proclaimed faithfully. These believers saw the fellowship of the gospel as something very precious. Do you know, it's wonderful when you have believers, even to their dying day, they see the fellowship in the gospel as the most precious thing. You go and visit some elderly, some shut-in saints, and you find their greatest concern is the work of Christ and the work of the church. Before you can ask them how they are, they say, oh, how so-and-so? How's that going? How's this going? Their greatest joy is still the gospel, the gospel of God. And though they can do little, yet they're always praying. They're praying the church will be blessed, praying that sinners will be saved. Their greatest joy is still that wondrous message, which alone is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing else can save. Nothing else can truly do that work, which completely changes a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and gives them blessings which are not just for this life, but for all eternity. Are you one who is in the fellowship of the gospel? Are you a partner in the gospel? You're doing all all you can. You're contributing in some way, however you can, to furthering Christ's kingdom and the gospel. So sadly, there are some Christians who claim to be the Lord's and be following the Lord, and yet they're nomads. They've got no roots. There's no church that they truly identify with, where they can show that they are a partner with the Lord's people in the gospel. That's where it should be expressed. Word of God makes it clear it should be expressed in a local church. They're a bit like a sort of snail without a shell, or a car with no engine, or an aeroplane with no wings. They can't really function, do the function that the Lord has called them to. Not only calls us into union with himself, he calls us into union with his people. And we should express that union. We should want, like these Philippians, to show that we are those who are partners committed to this wondrous gospel, the gospel of Christ. And we seek to further it through a local church. Churches can only stand, you see, if the people stand. 
The people are united together in supporting the work of the local church. We thank God for those here at Penzance who faithfully stand, who persevere, who still see what a privilege it is to belong to a body of the Lord's people. But not only was Paul thankful because God had begun that good work in the Philippians, and that work was evident, the work God had done was so evident in their faithfulness and love for the gospel. But the third reason why Paul is full of thanks is because the work God had begun, he would complete. The work God had begun, he would complete. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So there are some workmen some workmen who have very long waiting lists. They're very hard to get hold of. It's not only because sometimes their skills are are very specialised, perhaps a plasterer or something like that. It's very hard to do plastering if you don't know how to do it. But also, they know that... People know that when they start a job, they will finish it. And they'll finish it well. This man knows that his reputation is on the line. He's determined to finish the job and to finish it well. And so they're very popular. People want to use them because they know how they are those who always see it through and always complete it well. And you know, it's the same with God. The one who starts a good work in the believer's heart must and will complete it. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Did God begin it? Well, he won't leave it half done. He won't leave it unfinished. How terrible it would be, wouldn't it, if God did? How disorganised, how hopeless would seem the whole plan of redemption if he began a true work truly converted somebody and then didn't see it through to completion Paul makes it clear he will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ it will be ultimately completed and what Paul teaches here we find elsewhere throughout the word of God we find in John 6 Verse 39, our Lord says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. John 10, we had that read earlier. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, verse 38. 
Paul says there, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, as it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then a further quote to Timothy. Chapter 4 and verse 18. Paul says this, And the Lord will deliver me. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amazing there, Paul links God's preservation with God's glory. God will be glorified in the fact that he will bring all who he's begun that good work in, he will bring them safely through into glory. God would lose his glory, you see. God's name would be rubbished if Paul and every believer who he's begun a good work in does not make heaven and is not brought safely home. Believer, if God has begun a good work in you, if you're his, despite the malice of the world, despite the devil, the evil of the world, the ridicule, the hostility of unbelievers, the threat of persecution, the pain of trials, poor health, bereavement, even death. Do you know, if you do not safely make heaven, then we can no longer call God God. He must resign his throne. He must resign his name. What are those who say, well, they're Christians, and then they fall away? What about the work that was done in them? Well, really, that good work was never truly begun in them. Because, you see, God is certain. If a true work has begun, they will not fall away. God will keep them. Whatever they go through, he'll bring them safely to glory. Does my security mean that I can sin without worry? No, because you see, when God begins that work, the first thing he does is give a new nature, which means you cannot live as you once did if you're a true child of God. When you fall into sin, if you're a true child of God, you'll know sorrow, you'll know grief, you even know God's chastening. And eventually you'll come back to repentance and restoration. My friends, do you know him? Do you know this God? Do you know this Saviour? If you do, rejoice. Rejoice! Do you anticipate great trials and difficulties ahead? Do you think, well, perhaps I'll get dementia? Perhaps I'll lose loved ones. Perhaps I'll go through difficult times. My friend, never, did, never fear, never despair. He who has begun a good work in you, he will keep you, he'll preserve you. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will ensure that you are kept, whatever you go through, whatever you suffer. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will bring you through. He'll bring you to glory. He'll bring you to himself, that place called paradise, 
which is a wonderful paradise. There's no paradise on this earth that compares to the paradise of being in Christ's presence, there in glory for the child of God. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think of these Philippians. Disregarded. Many of them were slaves. Thought of as nothing in that mini Rome. Yet Paul, oh, he gives thanks for them. He rejoices over them. He loved them. They were those who God had begun a good work in. They were those who were partners in the only and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. They were those who God would complete his work in. Is that you tonight? May it be so that each of us can rejoice in these things. God has begun a good work. I'm a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will complete his work. Are you a joyful Christian? I think we're all, including me, not as joyful as we should be. When we consider the great glories of what God has done for us, what he's given to us, and what he's yet to give to us, and his promise to us, and is certain. May we be those who are thankful and joyful, realize what God is doing. May we thank God for his goodness to us. May we thank God for one another. We thank God for this church. 220 years. May have another 220 years being faithful to the gospel. That's if the Lord tarries. I think the signs of his coming is near. But may the Lord yet keep it and bless it. May he uphold the pastor who preaches the truth. We bless this God, don't we? Who is this God? Who is this God? That he should give us such wondrous blessings that are ours. It's all true. It's all ours. Oh, that he might take away that veil which is soft and over my eyes. That I might behold all the more the glories of what God has done. And of who God is, that we might truly thank him. With full and thankful hearts and with the devotion of our lives. For his name's sake. Amen.